Today we come to Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 23. So if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. And when you've found that, let's stand together in honor of the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading through verse 23. The Pharisees and some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem gathered around him. They observed that some of his disciples were eating bread with unclean, that is, unwashed hands. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, keeping the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they have washed. And there are many other customs they have received and keep, like the washing of cups, pitchers, kettles, and dining couches. So the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? Instead of eating bread with ceremonially unclean hands, he answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly about you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. He also said to them, you have a fine way of invalidating God's command in order to set up your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And whoever speaks evil of father or mother must be put to death. But you say, If anyone tells his father or mother, whatever benefit you might have received from me is korban, that is, an offering devoted to God, you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. You nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many other similar things. Summoning the crowd again, he told them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand. Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. When he went into the house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. He said to them, Are you also lacking in understanding? Don't you realize that nothing going into a person from the outside can defile him. For it doesn't go into his heart, but into the stomach, and is eliminated. Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, Thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a person. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Thank you for standing. Would you please be seated? If you picked up an outline in the back and saw the title, I have to confess the title to today's message is not original. How to be a hypocrite. I just couldn't pass it up, though. I came across it in the exegetical guide to the Greek New Testament, and it's suggested sermon homiletical outline began with the title, How to Be a Hypocrite, and I said, that you can't pass up, because it's catchy. It reminds us of one of the things that so often we struggle with in the life of the church. In fact, if you ask unbelievers, or maybe even some believers, one of the things they struggle with most 
about the church. They come and they observe and they say, it's just a bunch of what? Have you heard it before? Hypocrites. (laughs) Yes, hypocrites. Hypocrisy is defined as an actor playing a part, behind a mask, so to speak, pretending, going through the motions, and yet not truly believing or doing these things from the heart. So I want us to look at three surefire ways you yourself can become a hypocrite. You can pretend like you're honoring God, when in reality, you're just playing everyone. You're just pretending. So, what's the first way you can be sure to be a hypocrite? Well, you can make your own traditions and teach them like they're God's doctrines. Make your own traditions and teach them like they're God's doctrines. The key verses here from our text today come from verses 6 through 8. Jesus answered them, Isaiah prophesied correctly, or as some translations put it, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as is written. This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship me in vain, teaching as doctrines human commands. Abandoning the command of God, you hold on to human tradition. The Pharisees were teaching as doctrines those things which were merely human commands and holding on to, as verse 8 says, human traditions, but teaching them like God said, this is how it should be. This is a surefire recipe to make yourself look holy while at the same time running the risk of drifting away from any semblance of what God actually requires. You see, the Pharisees were questioning Jesus about why his disciples were not following their rules about washing. Now, in our day, when we hear that the disciples were eating with unclean hands, our first thought is, ooh, gross, or COVID, right? You know, unclean hands. But this text was not about hygiene at all. The amount of water being used literally was a fistful. Get a fistful of water and kind of sprinkle it around on things, symbolically washing, ceremonially, I can say it before, I can't say it again, ceremonially washing, if you will. This had never been commanded by God for everyone to do. This was a tradition passed down from the Jewish leaders of the days gone by. Taking some of the things that would have been done, perhaps, in the tabernacle or in the temple, and expanding it to say all Jewish people should do these things. But if you notice in verse they had a number of other similar customs that they did as well. It was an entire symbolic cleaning extravaganza. Some of you would have really liked that. You're very clean people. But again, this was not hygiene. This was symbolism. It was a ceremonial washing every time they came in from the marketplace. But Jesus sees right through their mask of holiness. And he quotes Isaiah 29 and verse 13. The Lord said, These people approach me with their speeches to honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me. And human rules direct their worship of me. Now, Isaiah certainly had people in his own day about whom this prophecy was true. But Jesus says it's also true of those who approach Jesus with this appearance of righteousness that is really only about following man-made traditions. Now, hear me clearly. Traditions themselves 
are not bad in and of themselves. But traditionalism can lead to legalism and hypocrisy. In fact, another title for today's message could have been How to Be a Legalist. Traditions, they can come from noble intentions like the purity of God's people, but they can become their own monster, rearing their ugly head when tradition is elevated to be on par with or even sometimes above God's word and God's commands. And that right there is the second way you can make sure you're a hypocrite or a legalist, and that is to enforce your own rules as if they are God's commands. It's not just to teach your tradition as though it's doctrine. It's to take it a step further and enforce your rules like you enforce God's commands. In the text here, there is a a literary link between verse 6 and 9 in the original language. In verse 6, you already heard me kind of quote, I think the ESV has it, well did Isaiah prophesy. It kind of begins with the word well. Isaiah did well when he did this. He prophesied about you. Well, verse 9, more literally, would be, well do you invalidate God's command in order to set up your tradition. You do a really good job at invalidating God's command to set up your tradition. Jesus is using irony, maybe even sarcasm here, to say that it's not just that you have taught others your traditions, you actually invalidate the express commandments of God in order to keep your rules. You invalidate. You hear how strong that is? Nullify. God's commands to keep your own rules. And Jesus gets specific. He's like, you know, that fifth commandment? You know, the one about which Moses said is punishable by death if you break it, by speaking evil of your father or your mother? You know, that kind of explicit command that God etched in stone with his very finger on Mount Sinai, who do you think you are telling people they don't have to keep the fifth commandment if they made a vow to devote their possessions to God? You're going so far with things that you actually, notice Jesus' words, you are invalidating God's commands in favor of your own made-up rules. Now, to understand this a little more fully, I want to explain This issue of korban, korban, we see it here in the text in verse 11. In itself, korban was a noble principle. You've got an estate, and you want to leave some of your personal wealth after you die to the Lord's work. So you dedicate it, or you vow it, as though it belongs to God. It would be like putting a portion or all of your estate into your will for LBC. By the way, if you want to know more about that, uh, let me know, (laughs) and I can get you set up with somebody from the BCMD. That is a thing. Again, this was a noble endeavor. It's a promise of charitable giving upon death. That's what Corban is. But it would seem as though this well-intended vow had turned into a loophole for greedy people. The catch is, you can use your wealth for yourself while you're alive, but you can't give it to anyone else because you've earmarked what remains of yours for God when you croak. Okay, so you, you look super spiritual, but then when your parents need your help, you can say, sorry, mom, sorry, dad, I can't help you in your illness or in your time of need because my wealth is devoted to God. I can't 
help you out. But the really awful thing that was happening was that if somebody had a change of heart, say they had vowed their possessions to God upon their death, but then their parents came and said, son, I really need your help. And you wanted to help them. You wanted to change your mind. The Pharisees and the scribal lawyers were refusing to allow that person to rescind their oath. So even if you wanted to help your parents, the Pharisees would say, I'm sorry, an oath is an oath, and you can't go back on your word. You'll just have to tell your parents they're out of luck. And that, Jesus says, is essentially nullifying God's command. And the worst part is, Jesus says, you do this kind of thing a lot. This is just an example. Now, in premarital counseling, I often encourage couples not to use language like, and you always do that. Or, you never tell me you love me. We tend to exaggerate, don't we? When we're in the midst of an argument. But here, Jesus, the sinless Son of God, says, you do many other similar things. And he meant it. William Lane writes in his commentary, Jesus categorically rejects the practice of using one biblical commandment to negate another. You see, this was an interpretation of Numbers chapter 30, which we just read recently. An oath is an oath, and a vow is a vow. But none of this playing God's word against itself. This interpretation in Numbers chapter 30 about vow keeping, it seized upon the letter of the law in such a way as to miss the meaning of the law as a whole. Well, this leads to the last point about how to be a hypocrite or a legalist, and that is to focus on the externals and disregard the heart. Focus on the externals and disregard your heart. In verse 14, Jesus summons the crowd and he calls them to listen up. If you recall when we were talking about the parables, that's why Mark says Jesus later explained the parable this way. Parables are often introduced with that phrase, listen up. Jesus is about to say something that really matters, a prophetic word, an oracle of God. And it's vital that they hear and understand what he has to say. Verse 15 Nothing that goes into a person from outside can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Now we know that the disciples did not immediately understand the implications of what Jesus said because verse 18 says as much. They were lacking understanding. They were trying to grasp it. But later, Mark and Peter and others would look back on this experience and they would fully grasp that Jesus was in this statement declaring that all foods are clean. Now this is a really big deal because dietary laws from the Old Testament were fundamental to Jewish national identity. It made it hard, if not impossible, for Jews to socialize with Gentiles because they couldn't share meals with those who would not adhere to their strict dietary and purity laws. But when Jesus gets away privately and explains things to his disciples, he makes it clear that the real threat to a person's purity is not what goes into his body, because let's face the facts. All that happens is it goes into the body and it comes out as waste. Literally, Jesus says, to the latrine. 
It's the stuff from inside our hearts that can really defile us. Then he gives a list in verses 21 and 22. For from within, out of people's hearts, come evil thoughts, sexual immoralities, thefts, murders, adulteries, greed, evil actions, deceit, self-indulgence, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Jesus could not be more clear about the importance of our hearts in matters of obedience and holiness. So if you want to be an A-plus, number one hypocrite, focus only on the externals, but understand that God looks at the heart. All right, so now you are fully in the know about how to be a hypocrite, right? Everybody came to church this morning to learn this. Of course, this is all tongue-in-cheek. The point is well made. This is not the Christian ambition. No Christian wakes up and says, I want to be more hypocritical today. Lord, let me be more legalistic this morning. So now that you know the pitfalls, allow me to share with you three takeaways of application from today's text. First of all, high man-made standards are awesome for yourself. High man-made standards, very critical adjective, man-made standards, are awesome for yourself. Traditions are cool. High standards are great. Do you feel like you don't want to even come close to breaking one of God's commands so you put your own fence around it to keep you from steering clear of it? Awesome. Are you convinced in your own conscience that something not explicitly forbidden in Scripture is wrong? Obey your conscience, Paul says. Your conscience is a gift from God. But remember, the minute you start enforcing your conscience and not God's commands on other Christians, you're setting yourself up to be a legalist or a hypocrite. Romans chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything. Hallelujah. While the weak person eats only vegetables. <sighs> Let not the one who eats anything despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul is very clear. You can, in fact, you should, have your own opinion on matters indifferent. The danger is when you take your own standards and start teaching them to others like they're from God's word and enforcing them on others like they're God's commands. No, we stand, Paul says, on our own two feet before our master and no one else will be our judge but God alone. So don't judge others who take a different approach than you do, listen, where the Bible is not explicitly clear. 
I want to quote R.C. Sproul, kind of paraphrase him actually at length here, which I found very pertinent to to today's application point. He said, 50 years ago, evangelicalism was plagued by a legalism that you don't dance, drink, smoke, go to movies, play cards, and so forth. Though things have improved on this front, this was such a matter for many evangelicals that one's entire spirituality and Christian profession was to be judged by conformity to those man-made stipulations. But you cannot find any explicit laws about these things in Scripture. How many Christians have been taught that it is sinful to do things that God has not declared sinful? They have been told that some matters indifferent are not actually indifferent. Dealing with weaker brothers here is the basic issue. For example, if I believe it's a sin to do XYZ, and I do XYZ anyway, I have committed a sin. Let me rephrase that so we're clear. This is why I said, if in your conscience you believe XYZ is a sin, you don't disobey your conscience because that is a gift from God. And Paul says, always do what your conscience tells you to do on things that are not explicit in Scripture. This is not because it's a sin in itself to do X, Y, and Z, but because it is wrong to conscientiously do what you consider to be a sin. In willingly acting to break what we even think is God's law, we show forth a rebellious spirit. We must therefore be careful when it comes to, I'm going to use Paul's word, despising the behavior of others on matters indifferent because we are not all on the same level of understanding about X, Y, and Z. So, how do you deal with the weaker brothers? Do I laugh at them? Jump on them with criticism? Or do you respect their conscience and say, I know that you, brother or sister, have a scruple about X, Y, and Z, and I don't want to make you stumble or entice you to do something you are convinced is a violation of the law of God. This is what Paul was willing to do out of love in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 through 13. Paul was willing to give up meat altogether for the sake of his weaker brother. That's love. If a person, listen, has a scruple I do not share, and it's their scruple as unto the Lord, then I, the stronger brother, have to bend over backwards to be caring and not to flaunt my liberty in their face. I should do the act that is indifferent but offends another believer in private. Our freedom in Christ is not autonomy whereby we can do anything we feel like doing. Do you hear me, stronger Christians? Our freedom in Christ is not an autonomy whereby we can do anything we feel like doing. It must always be accompanied by charity, a charitable sensitivity toward those who have scruples. But what happens when weaker brothers want to elevate their personal scruples to a level of moral standard for Christianity, or when they want to require it of all those who want to be members or even officers in the church. Listen, that is exactly the sort of thing that was happening in our text today. They were taking a tradition of man and elevating it and requiring it. Here, the weaker brother becomes the legalistic brother and begins to take a personal scruple and bind the consciences of other people and thus destroys all Christian liberty. 
The bottom line about all this is that Paul was willing to adapt his behavior to the scruples of weaker brothers when they did not impose them on others. The example of Titus's circumcision in Galatians 2, 1 through 10, shows us as soon as the weaker brother tried to enforce his weakness as the law of the church, the very gospel was being threatened. Rather than deny his own Christian liberty, in this case, for the sake of the weaker brother, Paul fought tooth and nail for the gospel. You see, once a person with a scruple tries to make it the scruple or rule for the entire church, then he must not be allowed to enforce a law where God has set us free. These principles of matters indifferent and the stronger and weaker brother are easy to grasp, but applying them takes a lot of wisdom. We must apply the gospel wisely and in love so that we might be patient with those young in the faith, but at the same time, not allow the weaker brother to impose his view on others. That was Sproul. Let me give you one of my favorite Charles Spurgeon quotes, and then we'll move on to the next point. Spurgeon said, quote, There is growing up in society a Pharisaic system which adds to the commands of God, the precepts of men. To that system, I will not yield for an hour. The preservation of my liberty may bring upon me the upbraidings of many good men and the sneers of the self-righteous, but I shall endure both with serenity so long as I feel clear in my conscience before God. So by all means, live out your convictions as to the Lord, but be very careful not to impose your own extra-biblical standards on other people. High man-made standards are awesome for yourself. Secondly, by way of application, God's standards always involve external and internal obedience. External and internal obedience. This fall, when we come to the study of the Ten Commandments, we'll spend more time diving into this reality of biblical ethics. But this text is a great reminder that while we can typically only legislate conduct, God is concerned with much more than rigid external obedience. We can legislate conduct. You can see the externals. And so there can be laws that keep one from doing one thing or another. And we can see the external. But God is concerned with the heart. Every parent Every spouse knows what this is like. Write this down. Duty without delight is a disappointing disaster. Duty without delight is a disappointing disaster. Here, honey, here are the flowers you deserve. You're my wife and I'm bringing them to you. Where's the delight? You did the right thing, but without delight, it's a disaster. Biblical ethics always involves not just conduct, but character and goals as well. Biblical ethics involves conduct, character, and goals. A morally right action occurs where the Venn diagram of those three things 
comes together. I feel like I can say that in an engineering town. (laughs) The Venn diagram, character, conduct, and goals, right there is the sweet spot of biblical ethics. C.S. Lewis uses the example of a fleet of ships. A fleet of ships. And he wants you to see character, conduct, and goals in this fleet. Now, if these vessels, imagine this fleet, is out there on the water, and they are colliding into each other, those collisions are our conduct. Those are those things that the law legislates against. If you are crashing into one another, doing one another harm, not loving your neighbor, well, the fleet would fail in its mission. But then there's the issue of seaworthiness. All you Navy folks can appreciate this. The vessel has to have seaworthy character. It has to have an engine that's running properly, right ability to navigate the waters from its inside. The ship itself needs to be seaworthy. And listen to this. If a ship is not seaworthy amongst a fleet of ships, it could cause collision. And if ships were constantly colliding into one another, they would affect seaworthiness. They are dependent on each other. We need both seaworthy ships and ships that don't collide. But what if we got both of those correct? And you were supposed to be in New York and you landed in Calcutta. The goal matters too. The end or the purpose the telos in Greek, the, the where to matters as well. Morality, to quote Lewis then, seems to be concerned with three things. Firstly, fair play and harmony between individuals. Secondly, with what might be called tidying up or harmonizing the thing inside each individual. And thirdly, with the general purpose of human life as a whole. What was man made for? What course ought the fleet be on? Incidentally, this is why a biblical understanding of morality is so critical, because the scripture teaches us that even when the externals look right, there is something not seaworthy about all of us. We are slaves of sin. And most critically, we are all headed in the wrong direction toward the wrong destination. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We all fail to go to the right goal of Christian ethics. We are made to glorify God. So even the right action with the wrong intended goal is immoral. Mark chapter 7, verses 21 and 22 teach us that Jesus is not only concerned with a a whole ethic, not just adherence to an external list of rules, but with our seaworthiness, our hearts, The good news is that the promise of the new covenant is the promise of a spirit-given obedience from the heart. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. A new spirit, 
heart and obedience, external as well. In this text, in Ezekiel, we see the right conduct, the obedience to the rules, with the right character, and ultimately for the right goal, all for the glory of God. Speaking of the new covenant, that the final point of application from today's text, and that is that Christ fulfilled the Old Testament dietary and purity laws. Christ fulfilled the law, especially the dietary and purity laws. If you are tracking things closely, you may have noticed something kind of interesting about this whole showdown with Jesus and the Pharisees. On the one hand, Jesus was saying, don't elevate your own word over God's word. But if you weren't convinced that Jesus is God, you could accuse Jesus of doing the same thing. You see, the Old Testament dietary law was pretty clear. But here, Jesus is saying that those laws are no longer binding. But Jesus had what the religious leaders lacked. All authority and perfect obedience. Tom Schreiner has a helpful book about 40 questions about Christians and the biblical law. One of the questions he asks and answers is, what is the role of the law in the gospel of Mark? Here's part of his answer. He says, quote, the newness that has come in Christ is apparent here. Certainly, the Mosaic Covenant and its laws no longer maintain the same status since the food laws are no longer mandatory. Do you remember the, the new wine and old wineskins? He says the new wineskins brought about by Christ replace the old wineskins. You don't take the new wine and put it into the old wineskins or they burst. The Mosaic Law is no longer binding since a new era inaugurated by Christ has arrived. At the same time, it does not follow that the commands of the law have no application for believers. When the law is interpreted in light of Christ's coming, for instance, the command to honor one's parents remains, for this is part of Christ's law for believers. On the other hand, the food laws no longer have any function or role in the lives of God's people. Now that Christ has come, the purity laws are fulfilled in him, signified by his healings. Think back through Mark's gospel with me, of the leper, his touching of the woman with a flow of blood, his healing touch of Jairus' daughter. The purity laws fulfilled. They didn't make him unclean. The new wineskins have arrived in Christ, and thus the old wineskins of the law must be interpreted in light of his coming. Mark does not give us the full picture, but the picture he gives fits with the larger scene found in the remainder of the New Testament. Indeed, the picture is consistent with the whole of the New Testament. Christ abolished the law. He fulfilled it. And that is really good news. I thank God for the freedom to eat bacon. I thank God for that. In all seriousness, Christ did what we could never have done. What we could never have done. One of my favorite verses in Romans chapter 8, verse 3. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, 
born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. By faith today in Jesus Christ, you can receive his perfect righteousness, his fulfilling of the law on your behalf, and be born of the Spirit, adopted as a son or daughter of God, free from the curse and the weight of the law, and completely free to obey God and his word from the heart. Christians, I have three exhortations. First, Christians, live according to your adoption. Walk in the Spirit. Unbelievers, lay hold of Christ Jesus and be free today. And hypocrites, be warned. There's abundant charity for weak brothers and sisters here at Leonardtown Baptist. But the minute you want your man-made standards to become the shibboleth for membership at don't be surprised if you get a rebuke similar to Jesus' words for the Pharisees in Mark 7 from the elders. Too much is at stake. In fact, the very gospel is at stake because we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, on the basis of Scripture alone. Listen, we need no other argument. We need no other plea. Nothing else will justify us before God. Obedience to those external man-made traditions will not save. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me and for you. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word today from Mark's gospel about your confrontation with the Pharisees and their effort to enforce external religious traditions. Father, we thank you that Jesus saw right through And Lord, we know that you see right through us. You see right to our very hearts. You know those who are here as a part of ritual, checking boxes and looking righteous. And Father, you know those who are like the publican who beat his chest and said, have mercy on me, a sinner. Were it not for Jesus, none of us would be able to Show forth our own righteousness in standing before you, Father. Your judgment would condemn every one guilty, sinners, living for self and not for your glory. So, Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jesus who came to fulfill and obey the law where we never could. Weakened by the flesh, the law was a curse to us. It condemns us all. But Father, you gave us the law as a schoolmaster to teach us, to show us that we need Christ. Romans 10, 4, Christ is the goal, the purpose of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. 
It was all to point us to Jesus and our need for him and his perfect obedience and fulfillment thereof. Lord, we thank you not just that he died for our sins, but Lord, that, that Jesus lived for our righteousness. And we are now clothed by faith in Christ's righteousness alone so that when we stand before you, it will not be because of our righteousness, not my righteousness, but Jesus is alone. Lord, I pray for our church that the main things would be the main things. The explicit and clear would be faithfully obeyed from the heart. And Lord, that you would free us from the dangers of hypocrisy and legalism. I thank you, Lord, largely that there is sweet fellowship amongst our church. I thank you, Father, that so many would proclaim, it's not me, it's not my righteousness, and I know I don't live up to all that I should be in Christ. But Lord, I thank you for the way there is so much maturity and grace and kindness displayed amongst brothers and sisters in our church. I pray that that sweet spirit of unity would remain and pervade. And Lord, that you would teach us, each one. We thank you that you are our master on matters indifferent. And Father, that it was for this reason that Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead, and the living. Teach us, Lord, to be obedient from the heart. Help us to obey. Teach our consciences. Guide us in truth. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be gathered around your word. We pray that you would plant it deep in our hearts. Rid us of those things in verses 21 and 22. Give us clean hearts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.